one day God's glory will be revealed and all the world will see and every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You know, the glory of God can be revealed right now through us because we are His dwelling place. We have become the temple, the residence of the Holy Spirit. And so when we allow the Holy Spirit to move in our lives and to work in our lives and to come out of our lives, then we are revealing that God has chosen to glory in putting himself in clay vessels, in earthen treasures, that he has revealed himself through his Son and now in us, which is an incredible thing to think about and far deeper than most of us want to go. But the reality is every day we can be a walking witness of the glory of God. When I think about Joseph, I think about a man who understood what it meant to glorify God. Joseph is a type of Christ. When you look at him in the, in the scriptures in the Old Testament, is, he's a picture of the coming Christ. He, his life gives evidence to us of some incredible things that are, are true in him that should be true in us, especially in light of the fact that we live on this side of the cross and we live with the Holy Spirit inside of us. Joseph is one of those great stories in the Bible. He's a rags-to-riches story. And uh, Americans love rags-to-riches stories. And his life would make a great movie. It's got a lot of intrigue in it. Uh, he's thrown into prison. He is uh, hated by his brothers. He's, he's got a father that's not really doing everything he's supposed to be doing. Uh, he gets thrown into prison again. He rises to a position of leadership. I mean, the, the story of Joseph is incredible. He is a manifestation of God's grace. Whether in adversity or prosperity, you find Joseph's walk with God being sustained that he maintains his fellowship with God regardless of what he's going through. And his life can be divided into three parts. The first part is found in Genesis 30 through 37. That's his birth through his teenage years, through the age of 17. So when you read the story of Joseph, it really is a three-part sermon. His life is divided into three parts, birth to 17. Secondly, from 17 to 30, that's chapters 37 through 41, which is primarily where we will be today. And then the third is 30 until his death, and that's chapters 41 until the end of Genesis chapter 50. Now, in all of these stages, God is doing something in Joseph's life. God is working with him and revealing himself to Joseph in an incredible way. And as we get into the story today, you're going to find out some things. Now, one of the stories that everybody knows, we learned it as a child, is Joseph and his multicolored tunic, his colored coat. Andrew Lloyd Webber did a musical on Joseph and his coat, and it, and it was just you know, somebody... <laughs> Somebody said to us one time, Andrew Lloyd Webber's musical on Joseph is a musical, which means it has no dialogue. It's just all music, except for the narrator. 
And uh, somebody said one time, I don't like that. I said, why? It's just so much music in it. Well, that's kind of the point. Uh, that's kind of what he was trying to do. You ever just meet people sometimes and just go, duh? <laughs> here's, here's a man that cannot be blamed because he had an indulgent father and because he was the youngest, his father pampered him and indulged him. Chuck Swindoll says, Jacob's other sons were no fools. They might have been lustful, unruly, deceitful, and vengeful, but they weren't stupid. They quickly recognized by the highly visible evidence of their father's indulgences toward Joseph that he was the pet of the family, and they weren't about to sit back and let that continue. Now, here's, here's the situation that sets up Joseph for his brothers to not like him. His father, Jacob, is basically an absentee dad. He's a passive parent. Now think about this. He has a daughter who is raped and he does nothing. He has a son, Reuben, who commits incest and he does nothing. But then he pampers, he gives his coat to Joseph. And so it brings out the worst in these brothers because although he's doing nothing in regards to their sin or their situations, he's just lavishing things onto Joseph and they resent Joseph for it. So let's pick up in Genesis 37. Genesis 37. In verse 2, Joseph, when 17 years of age, was pastoring the flock with his brothers while he was still a youth. And Joseph brought back a bad report about them to their father. You ever, any of you ever had a younger brother or sister that ever snitched on you? You've got to be careful what you say because it may be repeated to mom and dad. So, now Israel, Jacob, Israel, loved Joseph more than all his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a very colored tunic. His brothers saw that their father loved him more than all of his brothers, and so they hated him and could not speak to him on friendly terms. Any of you a part of a family where you can't speak to certain people in your family on friendly terms? That's too convicting. Let's move on. Then Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. And he said to them, Please listen to this dream which I have had. For behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and lo, my sheaf rose up and also stood erect, and behold, your sheaves gathered around and bowed down to my sheaf. Then the brothers said to him, Are you actually going to reign over us? Or are you really going to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Now, three times it says that they hated him. Verse 4, verse 5, and verse 8. Verse 11 says they envied him. Let's just say that this was not happy time at the family dinner table. Okay, you got one, and then you got these other brothers, and they hate their brother. They can't speak kindly to him. They just ignore him. They treat him bad. And here's Joseph who's telling them a dream. Joseph is always known by his dreams. It is in his dreams that God begins to reveal himself to him and show him things. And by the way, this is a dream that's also a prophecy that will be fulfilled when the brothers show up in Egypt years later during the famine. So let's look at the test of adversity. 
the test of adversity. The, the book of James, which we're in on Sunday nights, talks about trials and temptations. Let me tell you two things here. First of all, God, Satan wants to ruin us. Satan wants to ruin us. When trials and temptations come, Satan is trying to ruin our testimony. A test is always an attack on your testimony when it's from Satan's perspective. A temptation is an attack on your testimony. God wants to refine us. God wants to use a test to strengthen our testimony and to give us a greater testimony. When God gives us a test, he's trying to show us that he believes he can trust us with something. So he allows it to happen. He either causes it or allows it to happen so that in that test, our faith can be strengthened. Now, let me give you the difference between a test and a temptation. A test is used, the word test is used in the scriptures to try to refine or to separate. It is a separation of the gold from the dross or the silver from the dross. It is putting something through the heat so that in the testing, the best rises up. The, the dross is cleared away and, and God can see his reflection. That's what Malachi talks about with the refiner's fire. God is testing us so that he can see himself in us. And so he refines us. He tests us. Let me tell you what a temptation is. A temptation, the word means to probe, to find and exploit a weak spot. To probe find and exploit a weak spot. Now, a weak spot for me may not be a weak spot for you. A place where you are vulnerable to temptation may not be a place where I am vulnerable to temptation. Satan's schemes and plans are to find your weak spot, your vulnerable area where he can get in or has gotten in in the past and in doing so can bring you down. And so God sees these and Satan tries to ruin us, but God in even those times is trying to refine us and we see both of them in the story of Joseph. By the way, the coat that Joseph wore was a coat that somebody would wear who was not required to work. So not only are these brothers ticked off because Jacob loves Joseph more than he loves them, he's given them a coat that says, you don't have to work as hard as the rest of your brothers. Now that really make anybody mad. And so he, he's got this coat, and, and they get furious with him, and they throw him into a pit. They sell him to the Midianites. He gets out of that. He's taken to Egypt, and then he's sold to the Egyptians. Here's a guy who's going through test of adversity. The brothers stripped Joseph of his coat and cast him into a pit. They took the coat of blessing, and now it looks like a curse because Joseph is thrown into the pit sold into slavery. You know, where's your God now when you need him? Where are all the blessings now? You're thrown into this pit. So what's going on now? And by the way, the world is trying to strip the church of the blessings of our father. The world is trying to take us down. 
The world does not like the Christian that stands up and says, this is what God says. Because it's offensive. You can talk about God in general, but when you bring Jesus up, it gets a little more offensive. And the world hates that. And the world's trying to strip us of our power and of the gospel. They're trying to take it away. There are people standing in pulpits that are trying to take away the authority of God's word. I have a friend who just came back. I mentioned him a couple of weeks ago. I have a friend who just came back from teaching outside of the Middle East pastors and Christians who were brought out from uh, predominantly Muslim countries in the Middle East for training. And one of the missionaries there said, get a good look at these people because most of them will not be alive next year. Having given their life to Christ in a predominantly Muslim country, they are now marked for death because there is no tolerance, hear me well, there is no tolerance for Christianity in a predominantly Muslim country. That's a fact. You all better know it. There were men and women there that their wives had been killed. Their husbands had been killed. Their children had been killed to try to force them to renounce the gospel of Jesus Christ. One lady in particular stood up and gave her testimony. She had become a Christian and she started dating a man, was pledged to be married to a man who said that he was a Christian. And he said that he was a believer in Jesus Christ. On their wedding night, he told her that he was, in fact, a secret member of a radical Islamic terrorist group and told her if she left, she would kill him. He would kill her. They had a daughter. She had to go to court to try to get custody of her daughter. The judge said, you cannot have custody of your daughter unless you renounce Jesus Christ and Christianity. And she said, I cannot renounce my faith. I cannot renounce Christ. And she has yet to see her daughter since that day. And this was the judge's ruling. No person who believes in Jesus Christ is worthy to be the mother of a daughter. Now, can I tell you that in America today, we have people that are more worried about color of carpet and which side of the room the piano's on and whether the preacher's wearing a tie or not than they care about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen, folks, if it doesn't matter in eternity, you need to be quiet about it. Amen. Color of carpet is not eternal. A tie is not eternal. The gospel of Jesus Christ is eternal. And some of us need to get off of our secondary situations and get into some primary points. 
I've got a pastor friend right now that doesn't know if he's going to be able to make it in his church because he painted the fellowship hall a color that a woman in the church didn't like, and she's got a petition against him right now because she doesn't like the color of the fellowship hall. Now, folks, you don't, I'm going to write a book, stories I couldn't make up. They were too stupid. They were so true. I mean, that's going on with a pastor in North Carolina right now. He's fighting for his job after 12 years because he painted the color of the fellowship hall a color that she didn't like. I said, I'd paint it 35 colors. Tell her, just pick one and stand by it. They threw him in a pit. They wanted to get rid of him. They wanted to get the voice of Joseph out of their ears. And I tell you, we got a lot of people that are trying to throw the gospel into the pit and trying to sell it cheap and easy, trying to water it down to make it more acceptable. I sent a a devotional that I got through the email. I sent it to several of my pastor friends yesterday that said, you know, one of the problems that happens in the church in America today, this was A.W. Tozer, probably written about 1952. So one of the problems that happens in the church in America today is that we water down the gospel so that we can get more people to come applaud what we do. We cannot do that. Joseph could no more deny this dream than he could could deny that he was breathing. God had shown him something. He didn't understand the full measure of it, but he knew this. Hey, guys, I'm the youngest, but you're going to bow down to me. Now, that ticks off older brothers. But it became true. And I'll tell you why when we get to the end of the message. So in Genesis 39.3, we start to see the test of allurement. Potiphar has seen leadership potential in Joseph, so he doesn't make him a common slave. He he puts him over the head of his household. And now his master saw that the Lord was with him and how the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hand. And so Joseph found favor in his sight and became his personal servant And he made him overseer over his house, and all that he owned he put in his charge. He found favor. Couldn't find favor in his own family, but he found favor in the house of Potiphar, in the house as a slave. And he put him in charge of everything. And now he comes to the test of allurement because Potiphar's wife is not a godly woman. Let's look at two or three things here. First of all, it was unexpected. It was unexpected. I mean, after all, if you've been thrown into a pit, sold to the Midianites, sold again, you pretty well think, you know, I've done my duty for God and country. I've had all the battles I'm going to go through. I'm not going to have any more issues I have to deal with. And, And here comes this woman. Joseph had survived the pit. He's in a position of influence. And now the wife comes and strikes like lightning at him. I'm not sure he saw it coming. A lot of the reasons that people fall in the test of allurement is they're not watching for it. They don't see it coming. They don't have their spiritual armor on every day. They, they, it was unexpected. Secondly, it was relentless. 
It was relentless. Look at chapter 39 and verse 6. Chapter 39 and verse 6. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, and it came about after these events, after he'd found favor with Potiphar, after he'd been given charge of all these things, that his master's wife looked with desire at Joseph and said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, with me here, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house, and he has put all that he owns in my charge. There is no one greater in this house than I, and he has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. Now notice the question that he asked. How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? He didn't say sin against my owner. He didn't say sin against your husband. He said, how can I do this and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he did not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. Day after day, temptation, temptation. Here's a 30-year-old man. He's never been married. He's away from home. He's away from family. He doesn't know anybody except the man who owns him. Hey, everybody else does it. Go out and do it. It'll just be our little secret. You see, his resistance could have been worn down by her persistence. But day after day, he refuses. I want to tell you, it's hard to find in our culture today people who have that kind of virtue, who wait, who understand God's principles for sex and for marriage. Joseph said, this is a great evil if I do this. Today we say, I just can't help myself. You know, she just threw herself at me. He just threw himself at me. Today we make all kinds of excuses and say it was love. It's, it's not love outside of marriage. I don't care what you call it. It's not love the way God intended love to be. It is ultimately using another person for your personal satisfaction. That's what it boils down to. And so here's Joseph. One day nobody else is in the house. And she comes after him. And he says, if I cave into this, it'll be a sin against God. Now remember, God's people operate by principles, not by expediency. We operate by principles, so don't forget the lessons. First of all, the desire is not wrong. Desire is not wrong. We, we think, oh man, you know, Billy Graham used to say, you can't control a bird flying over your head, but you can stop him from building a nest there. Desire, desire is not wrong. Temptation is not sin. It is yielding to the desire and yielding to the temptation that becomes sin. Temptation becomes sin when we gratify legitimate desires with illegitimate sources or to an excessive degree. That's when it becomes sin. Genesis 39, 12, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand and fled and went outside. By the way, the world never stops appealing to your desire and tempting you to cave in and meet a legitimate need in an illegitimate way. Thirdly, it could be overcome. It could be overcome. Now, let me give you three things here quickly. First of all, by unwavering commitment to God. It could be overcome by unwavering commitment to God. Here's a man who considered it a sin against God. 
He had made a commitment to God long before this temptation had come. So first of all, it can be overcome by an unwavering commitment to God. Secondly, by seeing sin the way God sees it. By seeing sin the way God sees it. He says, this great evil. We fail when we fail to be shocked by sin. And when we fail to be shocked by sin, we become susceptible to it. So he calls it a great evil. He calls it what it is. And then thirdly, he had made up his mind in advance. Somewhere, somehow, in some moment in Joseph's life, he had decided that he was not going to sin against God. He was going to be a godly man. Somewhere, somehow, he understood that God was holy. And he was to be a man given to holiness. Franklin Jones says, what makes resisting temptation difficult for many people is that they don't want to discourage it completely. Now let me give you a thought here. No degree of temptation justifies any degree of sin. No degree of temptation justifies any degree of sin. Well, you just don't know. The temptation was so strong. According to Paul in 1 Corinthians, God has made a way of escape. There's no temptation that has come such as common to man, but God has made a way of escape. God's given us ways out. We just have to make the choice to choose his ways. And then fourthly, it led to more adversity. It led to more adversity. Well, Potiphar's wife lied, misled her husband. So Joseph is now thrown into prison again. Verse 21, chapter 39. But the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him and gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. The chief jailer committed to Joseph's charge all the prisoners who were in the jail so that whatever was done there, he was responsible for. I, I want to tell you, Trust does not eliminate trials, but even in the trials, God finds people he can trust. God found a man he could trust, and so what happens? He's, he gets out, Potiphar says, I'm going to trust you with everything in my house for you to run my house. He gets in prison, and the jailer says, you know what? This guy's good. You know, I'm not just going to chain him up and feed him bread and water. I'm going to put him in charge of everything that happens. He's going to be responsible for what happens in this jail. And he spent several years in the prison... He was there with a baker who had forgotten his dream that he interpreted for him, and so we come to the test of advancement. Two years later, Pharaoh has a dream. All his magicians and his cult leaders, his wise men, none of them can interpret it. But the baker remembers that Joseph had accurately interpreted the dream of the baker and the cupbearer. Baker, you know, Baker's one of those guys that, man, I'll never forget what you did for me. <laughs> he got up and he forgot. That's why you ought to keep a journal so you can remember what God did for you. Because if you don't, you'll forget. The reason you forget is because you forget to remember. Some of you will get that sooner or later. He got up there and he forgot. He, you know, he's in there making Krispy Kreme donuts and you know, putting sprinkles on them and everything. And one day Pharaoh has a dream and all of a sudden the light click, clicks on. Well, I, I'm glad I've got friends that don't wait two years to remember. I don't want to be a person who waits two years. Oh, by, by the way, uh, 
I remember what you did for me. Remember, Joseph said, don't forget me when you get out of here. Oh, I won't forget you. And he got out and he forgot him. Look at chapter 41. Because he remembered, Joseph was released from prison and brought before Pharaoh. Chapter 41 and verse 28. We're going to read a little lengthy here. By the way, Pharaoh gives Joseph a new name. And his name means one who furnishes nourishment to the land. The new name, the Egyptian name that Joseph is given, means one who furnishes nourishment to the land. So look what happens. Genesis 41, verse 28. God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. Behold, seven years of great abundance are coming in all the land of Egypt. And after them, seven years of famine will come, and all the abundance will be forgotten in the land of Egypt, and the famine will ravage the land. So the abundance will be unknown in the land because of that subsequent famine, for it will be very severe. Now as for the repeating of the dream to Pharaoh twice, it means that the matter is determined by God, and God will quickly bring it about. Now let Pharaoh look for a man discerning and wise and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh take action to appoint overseers in charge of the land and let him exact a fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt in the seven years of abundance. Then let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up the grain for food in the cities under Pharaoh's authority and let them guard it. Let the food become as a reserve for the land for the seven years of famine which will occur in the land of Egypt so that the land will not perish during the famine." Now the proposal seemed good to Pharaoh and to all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is the divine spirit? So Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has informed you of all this, there is no one so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house. And according to your command, all my people shall do homage. Only in the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took off his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold necklace around his neck. And he had him ride in his second chariot. And they proclaimed before him, Bow the knee. And he set him over all the land of Egypt. Now think about that. His father has entrusted him, sees something in him, although he's an indulgent dad. He gets thrown into a pit. He gets taken to prison. In the prison, he is chosen by Potiphar. Potiphar says, I see something in you. God's got favor on you. I'm going to put you in charge of the land, uh, of all my house. And then he gets thrown into prison again. He gets called out by Pharaoh. Pharaoh says, I see something in you. I'm going to put you in charge of all the land. So he's been in charge of a house. He's been in charge of a land. You know what that is? That's the parable of the talents. God will give what he can trust. What do you do with what you have? Here's a man's in prison. So, well, I'm a nobody. I'm in prison. Nobody remember me. I'm just not going to do anything for God. Whatever God has given you, do something with it. Because you never know what God has next for you. What the next step in your spiritual journey is, you do something with what God has given you and then watch how God expands it. So here he's had the multicolored tunic Now he gets Pharaoh's signet ring. He's no longer the pampered son of a passive father. He has learned through adversity and through allurement and through advancement to be in a position where God can use him. 
He is positioning himself to be a man that God can get his hands on and work through him. And so you remember, we'll kind of wrap this up. His brothers show up. He doesn't tell his brothers it's him for a while. He has this little back and forth with his brothers. Let me tell you what he was doing with his brothers. What he was looking for from his brothers was repentance and reconciliation. Because the brothers assumed he was dead. And so what he was leading up to was to lead them to a point where they would repent of their jealousy, their envy, their hatred, so that they could be blessed. And then reconciliation. Go get dad. Bring him here. I'm going to take care of everybody. We're going to send wagons to get all your wives and your children. We're going to get your livestock. You come here to the land of Goshen and you live and I'm going to take care of you. In a time of famine when everybody else is is falling apart, I'm going to take care of you. Listen, repentance and reconciliation always put you in a position for God to start blessing you again. It may have been 20 years ago like it was with Joseph. That there was something that you wouldn't forgive, wouldn't get over, wouldn't, wouldn't let go of. And God says, if you'll forgive it, if you'll get over it, if you'll let go of it, I will put you in a position where I can use you again in a way that you cannot be used otherwise. And so here's Joseph, chapter 42 in verse 21. The brother said, truly we are guilty concerning our brother because we saw the distress of his soul When he pleaded with us, remember it just says over and over again that Joseph had to hide his face. He was weeping because here were his brothers and he wanted to be reconciled to them. Yet we would not listen, therefore this distress has come upon us. You know, they thought Joseph would respond in kind. He'd get revenge. What Joseph was looking for was reconciliation and reassurance and repentance. Six times it says in the book of Genesis, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. We did an interview this week, and before we were doing it, we were having a conversation. And the Lord just kind of, you know, you ever have one of those moments when you just feel like the Lord just gave you a thought? (laughs) You know, I'm not saying he spoke to me in a verbal voice, but he gave me a thought. The Lord entrusts those he can trust. The Lord will entrust those he can trust. Some, some people say, well, why, why don't I get to do this? Or why don't I get to do that? Or why don't I get to, have, I mean, I see preachers. Why don't I get to have that kind of church? Why don't I get to, you know, be in a, a bigger church? Why don't I get to do, you know, no, no preacher ever asked for a smaller church. Have you ever noticed that? And always God's moving them to a bigger place. I feel God's moving me to a bigger place. Nobody ever asked for a smaller place. Why, why don't I get to be the singer? Why don't I get to have the solo? Why don't I get to be the head of the deacons? Why don't I get to be elected to this office? Why don't I get to do this? i tell you why. Because somewhere God has put it in the heart of other people that you can't be trusted. Because if you're gifted and you're obedient and you're walking with God and you're filled with the Spirit, it'll happen. If you can be trusted with it. But I tell you what, if it becomes your church office, your position, your life, your voice, your ministry, your gift, your talents, you can't be trusted. You have to position yourself 
So that God, when he looks down on your life, say, you know, here's what they did with the one talent. I'm going to give them a couple more. Here's what they did with the five talents. I'm going to give them a couple more. And some of us spend all of our lives in church burying our talents. So I just don't want to do it. I don't want to, I don't want to be in that position. I'd be responsible. I'd, I'd have to take responsibility. Somebody would expect more of me. I, I couldn't miss as much as I'm missing right now. Well, then don't complain. God entrusts those that he can trust. I, I think if there was a song maybe that uh, Joseph could have written, it would be this one written by Mark Hall. Casting Crowns did this song. It's called Praise You in the Storm. I lift my eyes unto the hill. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. I lift my eyes unto the hill. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And I'll praise you in the storm. And I will lift my hands for you are who you are, no matter where I am. And every tear I've cried, you hold in your hand. You never left my side. And though my heart is torn... I'll praise you in the storm. Some of you are going through tests of adversity. Some of you are going through tests of allurement. Some of you are about to be positioned to do something really significant for Christ. But it's how you handle what you have that determines if God can give you more. I tell you, I, I look back over my life and 55 years and counting, thank God. I, I look back over my life and, you know, I'm just a kid that grew up on the coast of Mississippi in a dead Baptist church. That's all I am. And when I, when I look at my life and I see that... God has done so much. If he didn't do another thing, I could never complain. But when I look at my life and I see the blessings, I can look back at the moments in my life when I have chosen in storms and in adversity to come to the point of surrender and submission to God. When times when I have been tempted to turn away or to settle for second best, and God reminded me of commitments that I made early on in my Christian life. And the only explanation for the trust is that I've been entrusted because I have tried as best I understand by the power of the Spirit to stay true to the commitment I made to Jesus Christ that if nobody else goes with me, I'll still follow him. That's the only explanation. I mean, I... God has entrusted this church with some incredible opportunities. But with those opportunities will come for individuals and for us collectively. Test of adversity, test of allurement, test of pride and self-sufficiency. 
where God's going to find out if he can trust us with even more than he has already trusted us with. Because you see, God's not going to entrust us with anything if in the process we blow our testimony and we blow the credibility of the gospel of Jesus Christ because we don't understand that to sin is a great evil and it has consequences against God not just against the other person so let me ask you today if you were put through the test that Joseph was put through how would you score would you pass or would you fail if you were put through these three tests, how would your life stack up at this point? And if it's not stacking up like it needs to at this point, maybe you need to do something today in your relationship to Christ. Position yourself so that God can do in you and through you what he could never do otherwise. Let's stand together with heads bowed and eyes closed.